come to know by his nickname, Paul. But as we continue on our way through the book of Acts, we switch back now from thinking about Paul and we start thinking about Peter again. And in fact, we've got three stories about Peter before Luke brings us through to the conclusion of his book, the second half of his book being all about Paul. But before we get to Paul again, we've got three more stories about Peter. And so story one is a double miracle story, the healing of Aeneas and the raising of a dead woman named Tabitha. And that story we're going to look at today. The second story is a conversion story, the conversion of an Italian soldier named Cornelius. And we're going to look at that story next week. And then the third story about Peter is an escape story. Peter escapes from jail during the Herodian persecution of the church in the mid-40s AD. Well, let's look at today's text, the double miracle story of uh, Aeneas and Dorcas, uh, or Aeneas and Tabitha, and it's on page uh, 891 of the Pew Bible. Um, And if we back up a verse to verse 31, we'll see that we're talking about a time of peace. No persecution, it's a peaceful time. Recovering from a time of persecution, the church now experiences peace. And during the peace, um, Peter travels around. During the persecution, the 12 apostles had considered it best to stay put in Jerusalem. But now, in the peace, Peter visits, travels around, visiting the newfound churches in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Now, with respect to these two miracle stories, these two miracles... Um, there is obviously a very close correspondence between Peter's miracles and Jesus' miracles, as recorded in the Gospels. And that's my first point. Peter is copying Jesus. Or to put that another way, Peter is following Jesus. He's copying him. And Jesus healed a number of people who had been paralyzed or who, for whatever reason, had been bedridden, perhaps for years and been bedridden as a result of an accident or illness. And we uh, read one such account in Mark's gospel this morning. And uh, Peter's words to Aeneas in verse 34, uh, those words being, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and roll up your mat, or to translate the Greek more literally, but perhaps more clumsily, Jesus Christ is healing you, get up and organize yourself. These words strongly recall Christ's words, both to the, to the paralytic he encountered in his hometown of Capernaum, as well as to the invalid that he, uh, that he met at Bethsaida Paul in Jerusalem in John's Gospel, chapter 5. Very close correspondence. And, and then with Tabitha, Peter, just like Jesus with Jairus' daughter, Peter asks all of the mourners to leave, to get out before before he he raises Tabitha to life, verse 40. And actually, Peter's words to Tabitha in verse 40 strongly recall Jesus' words to Jairus' daughter, recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, as Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, um, if Peter spoke Aramaic, to, to, to Tabitha, and we don't, don't know if he did, or he might have spoken Greek, but if he spoke um, Aramaic, then he is likely to have said, Tabitha, kum. In other words, 
uh, Jesus' words and Peter's words differed actually only by one single letter. Talitha, which is Aramaic meaning little girl, becoming Tabitha, which is Aramaic meaning gazelle. Uh, Dorcas being the Greek word for gazelle. So very, very close correspondence between these miracles. And that's my first point. Peter is copying Jesus. My second point is that the miracles, both accounts record the fact that Peter did not possess some mysterious supernatural power, but rather that God was working through him by way of the Holy Spirit. In the first miracle, Peter says it explicitly, Jesus Christ is healing you. And in the second miracle, the same thing is implicit because Peter gets down on his knees to pray first and then he calls her to life. So, so Jesus and Peter had this in common. Both did miracles in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to show that God was at work through them. Jesus and Peter, however, differ in this. When Peter does these miracles, he does them as an ambassador for a foreign power. He cannot heal in his own name. When Jesus did miracles, he did them as a demonstration of his kingship, a resident power. Jesus did not pray before he healed anyone. He just did it in his own name. Look at Peter. This is God at work through him. Look at Jesus. This is God. That's my second point. The miracles are manifestations of God's power. But why? To, to, what, to what effect? To, to, to what purpose? Why, why these miracles? Why did they happen? Well, that's my third point. The, the miracles are telling and authenticating signs pointing to the gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is their ultimate reason for being. Or to put that another way, these miracles are actually not ultimately performed for Aeneas's or Tabitha's benefit or welfare. Not that that's unimportant. It's just actually it's not for them, or at least not for them alone. There's something more important happening. And that thing, is, that thing that's more important is that their communities might see and understand and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, look, look with me at verse 35. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, Aeneas that is, and turned to the Lord. And verse 42, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Why? Why would these people turn to the Lord and believe in Jesus in response to these miracles? Why? Well, actually, I can think of at least two very good reasons. Uh, firstly, it is hard to argue with a woman who's been brought back from the dead and a paralyzed man who, after being bedridden for eight long years, doesn't even need so much as physio. I mean, we can't do that nowadays. Full and total restoration. Total healing. He picks up his mat. 
And Peter's gospel is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is alive and well, and furthermore, in charge. He reigns. Nothing is beyond him. He's totally in power. I, I, as many of you know, um, I became a Christian uh, in my uh, mid-twenties. At that time, I was doing a PhD in uh, biochemistry. And uh, I became a Christian when I realized that the Christian gospel was, to use the terms of my science background, testable and observable truth. True truth. This gospel of Peter's is not simply some kind of philosophical or religious truth. It is a political reality. Jesus Christ is in the heavenly White House, whether we voted for him or not. It's a fundamental truth claim. You won't understand life. Actually, no, you you won't understand life. You won't get life. You won't get this universe or anything in it, ultimately, until you come to terms with Jesus. It's true. Testable, observable truth. Start a conversation with Jesus and he answers. Trust him and you find him trustworthy. Obey him and you find him right there. So that's the first reason why people believed the miracles. They realized that, these, that the claims of the Christian community, the gospel that they were preaching, was testable, observable truth. True truth. But there's a second reason why they turned to the Lord in response to these miracles. And that reason is this. Peter's miracles are miracles or signs or wonders or works of salvation. In other words, they are good stuff happening. Nice, happy events. Undoubtedly, miracles of judgment do occur, but that's not what Peter is doing here. I mean, just to give you an example, if I announced this morning, I'm going to preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and by way of proof, everyone here who has cheated in their last tax return is going to fall dead at the conclusion of the service. If I said that, and it happened, then that might be a very convincing proof, but you would be in some doubt as to whether it was good news or not. These miracles demonstrate something about Peter, something about the, the gospel that Peter is preaching. They demonstrate that forgiveness of sins is ours in Christ Jesus, in his name. Peter's gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. All those who turn to him in repentance and faith, there's amnesty, there's forgiveness, there's healing. And there is healing with respect to to our deepest need, which is forgiveness from God. So that's my third point. The miracles are telling and authenticating signs, pointing to the gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that is their ultimate reason for being. Um, We've looked at the text. Uh, Let's now think, what does this mean for us today? Well, um, one question that has preoccupied the Christian church for the last century or more is the question of whether or not we expect in our age and in our context for the preaching of the gospel to be accompanied by such signs and wonders, by by miracles like these. And the text today suggests, hints, that the right answer perhaps is no. 
we can see, for example, in verses 38 and 39, that the disciples in Joppa sent urgently for Peter to travel to them in response to the crisis. It is plainly their assumption that they don't have the power or the authority to do this miracle themselves. It is also clear that Peter shares with them that assumption. He, he quickly acquiesces to their request and he goes with the two men. Once there, he throws everybody out and then proceeds to do the miracle by himself. This is not the action of a man who is interested in teaching others how to pray and act in similar situations. He is not, in other words, taking this as a discipling opportunity. Although he is copying Jesus, he's not training up anyone to copy him. It might be reasonable to assume, therefore, that such authority to do miracles is exclusive to the apostles. And if that's correct, we don't expect miracles past the close of the apostolic age, which is to say, once Peter and his buddies had all gone to heaven. But if we expand our view to look at this in context, in the context of the whole book of Acts, we see that not everybody who did miracles was an apostle. Miraculous gifting is not limited to the apostles. Philip and Stephen, for example, did extraordinary signs and miracles, and neither of them were apostles. Philip's four daughters continue in this vein with respect to their prophetic ministry. And expanding our view further to include the whole New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul in his letter, in his letters, clearly expects such miracles to continue in the church in his absence, but not universally. And in fact, as many, as many of us know, um, healing miracles, even people being raised from the dead, they do continue to occur in our day. There are times and places where such miracles become astonishingly common. Certainly, I know there are many in this room who have either seen or received or prayed for and delivered a healing miracle. But we also know that there are, there are confusingly, times and places where such miracles become exceedingly rare, perhaps even unknown. So, do we expect such miracles to continue in our age and and context? I guess the answer is maybe. But what does this text say to us today? This text reminds us that such questions, they're not unimportant, but the, the, the text reminds us that miracles, their purpose, when and if they come, the miracles are, are not so much in the service of the individual, although that's not unimportant, but rather miracles, when they come, are in the service of the gospel. The very exceedingly good news that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and that forgiveness of sins and eternal life are available in his name. And so this text reminds us both today and back then that the gospel is true, testable and observable reality, but it reminds us that when people believe in Jesus, that's the real miracle. And indisputably, Jesus is still in the business of transforming people and communities, healing, saving, forgiving, transforming, raising from the dead. The Lord be with you. Amen.